0: are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. The last chapter of Joshua, chapter 24. I shall begin reading at verse 1, the text will be verse 15. And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads, and for their judges, and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time. That word translated flood is the Hebrew word Nahar. It means a great expanse of water. The flood referred to here is the river Euphrates. I call attention to that because it's not speaking of the great flood of Noah's day. Abraham did not dwell on the other side of that flood, but he dwelt beyond the river Euphrates. Mesopotamia, and uh, Haran, and uh, before that, Ur of the Chaldees. And uh, I call attention to this because it has relevance to the message I shall bring. And uh, your fathers dwelt on the other side of the river in old time, let me translate it. Even Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, the flood, and led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his seed, and gave him Isaac. And he gave unto Isaac Jacob and Esau, and he gave unto Esau Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. I sent Moses also, and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt, according to that which I did among them. And afterward I brought you out, and I brought your fathers out of Egypt. and You came unto the sea. And the Egyptians pursued after your fathers with chariots and horsemen under the Red Sea. And when they cried unto the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your eyes have seen what I've done in Egypt. And ye dwelt in the wilderness a long season. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, which dwell on the other side of Jordan. And they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land and I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and warred against Israel, and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not hearken unto Balaam, therefore he blessed you still. So I delivered you out of his hand, and ye went over Jordan and came unto Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you. The Amorites and the Perizzites (coughs) and the, the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I delivered them into your hand. <clears throat> and I sent the hornet before you, which drave them out from before you, even the two kings of the Amorites, but not with thy sword, nor with thy bow. And I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which ye built not, and ye dwell in them, of the vineyards and of the olive yards which you planted not, do you eat. Now therefore, fear the Lord. And serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. And serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But it's from me and my house... We will serve the Lord. We will serve Jehovah, the God of heaven. Everybody worships some kind of a God. In ancient times, every city or pursuit of life had its particular God or goddess. Athens was the city of Minerva. She was the goddess of wisdom. Her Greek name was Athena, and the city was named for the goddess of wisdom. Many of the Athenians also worshipped Sidon, the god of the sea. But Minerva, the goddess of wisdom, uh, had a temple in Athens, or they built a temple for this goddess, this great statue, ivory, pure ivory statue, covered with pure gold. And uh, her temple was called the Parthenon, from the word virgin, Parthenos, virgin. And they worshipped this goddess in Athens. Uh, Ephesus was the city of, of the goddess of the hunt, or the goddess of the chase. Uh, her, her silver statues were sold, and the uproar was caused over the sale of those statues, you remember. And uh, she was also the goddess of fecundity. I've seen statues of this goddess standing between her stone dogs in the ruins of old Ephesus, and her body covered with breasts, because she was the goddess of fecundity. And the people of, Eph- of, of Ephesus worshipped this goddess. And uh, there were many other goddesses they worshipped, and uh, gods, uh, Rome was the city of Mars, the god of war. There are people who bow down at that shrine today. There are people who worship at the shrine of uh, Minerva. There are people who worship at the shrine of, uh, of the goddess of, of the hunt, the goddess of sport. You know, they've turned the Lord's Day into a day of frolic and a day of the hunt and the fishing and, and sports, games. Some people can't wait till the benediction at church to see the kickoff of the football game. I think athletics can be a wholesome part of the educational process, but it's a shame that they have become so highly commercialized. They've almost become a curse. Thank God for a school that does not let the tail of athletics wag the dog of the school. I believe athletics are a wholesome part of the educational process, but they must be kept in proper perspective. And uh, there are those various gods that still flourish today. Over at Baalbek, near the border of Syria, uh, is a complex of temples, ruined temples. Some of you have seen them there. I saw the temple to the god of the sun, where the ancients worshipped Baal, the sun god. It's thought that that was the hometown of Jezebel. Her father Ethbaal was the priest of Baal at Baalbek. And uh, when the Greeks came and conquered those people, they established their temple there, beautiful temple with the Greek architecture, tremendous temple. And they worshipped Zeus, the god of the sun, as the Greeks called him. And then came the Romans, conquered the Greeks, rebuilt the temple, keeping some of the Greek motif and establishing a great Roman temple to Jupiter, the god of the sun. And uh, some of the columns are still standing despite the earthquakes that tore down the buildings. And yet uh, some of those columns, eight feet in diameter, 60 feet in length, were brought all the way from Aswan, Egypt. Uh, and some of them Uh, are are almost eight feet, seven feet, and ten inches in in diameter, and sixty feet in length. There's not a crane on earth that could lift one of them. You could not get enough people around one to move it an inch. And yet uh, somehow the Romans devised a means of bringing those columns all the way from upper Egypt, down the Nile, over the Mediterranean, over the Lebanon mountains, and over near the border of Syria, and reared them up there, and they're still standing, some of them, one column upon another, reared up 120 feet in the air with tremendous capitals on top of those columns, as high as from where I stand uh, to that loudspeaker up there, those capitals on top of those columns. And uh, there are great limestone columns, the same dimensions, were digged out of the mountains around Baalbek. And there's that temple where they worshipped the God of the sun. Adjacent to it, just a few feet away from it, rather, is the ruined temple of Bacchus, the god of frivolity, the god of drink. He has his temple in every city in the United States, with few exceptions. Thank God our little city of Decatur, uh, with only around 50,000 people, voted dry last week. To stay dry, you have to go across the river to get whiskey or beer or wine in Decatur over to Huntsville or across the river up there in another county, but uh, in nearly every city of the United States, Bacchus has his temples, great columns of human skulls, dry ghastly eye holes, altars bloody with human souls, burning upon them in blue alcoholic flames, thousands of people crowd to the shrine, sacrifice upon the altar. Somebody comes with, with his wealth, somebody comes with his health. Somebody comes with the hearts of loved ones. When I see what liquor does for people, how it caused a man to kill his wife while under the influence, I stood in a prison cell, talked with a man, sentenced to be hanged for that purpose. He looked from behind the bars and said, I didn't kill her, liquor did it? I had to say, you drank the liquor. And it caused a man to come across the highway 57 inches on my side of the white line and kill a loved one of mine. I say, when I see what it does for people, I think Shakespeare must have been almost inspired when he wrote, you put an enemy in your mouth to steal away your brains. And that's exactly what alcohol does. It puts a part of the brain to sleep and the part that inhibits one. And so the other part takes over and does what it wants to do. That's why one man gets drunk and he wants to fight and somebody else gets drunk and he wants to love everybody. One man gets drunk, he wants to give you all of his money. Somebody else gets drunk, he wants to take yours. It affects people in different ways because the, that part of the brain that inhibits them is asleep. And uh, I think it's so foolish for people to put their brains to sleep. And yet they do that when I see what it does. How, here comes a young lady, whatever you there, uh, young lady. She says, it's my virtue, the most precious jewel in our crown. She puts on the bloody altar. Somebody comes with something shrieking. I ask, what have you there, young man? He says, my soul, what are you going to do with that? I'm going to sacrifice it to my God. Down it goes on the bloody altar. I say, don't do that. Christ died for that. Down it goes. Oh, how terrible. People worship these ancient gods. You don't have to go to some faraway place or go way back in history to find idolatry. You'll find it in your neighborhood. You'll find it all around you, people worshiping. These many gods. And everybody worships something. Years ago, I went down to Miami to hold a meeting in the First Baptist Church back in the days when old Dr. Hudson, a great fundamentalist, was pastor down there. And I rode a bus down from Jacksonville. A lady sat by my side and asked if I were a tourist. I said, No, ma'am, I'm an evangelist. She said, uh, Oh, she said, uh, Is that so? I said, Where are you from? Well, in those days, I was assistant to the president of Bob Jones University, and I told her, oh, she said, I've heard of that institution. She said, that's a reactionary school, isn't it? <laughs> well, I said, it's reactionary to atheism, communism, if that's what you mean, but it has a positive program. And she said, I did not know that educated people believed in God anymore. Well, I said, lady, you ought to go around. The profoundest scholars I know believe the old book from cover to cover. And like the old lady up in South Carolina said, they believe the cover too because it says Holy Bible on the outside. She said, incidentally, I received my master's degree from a certain university. And she said, I received my PhD from Columbia University. And she said, all the young people who got their doctorates and I got mine were atheists. Oh, I said, I'm sorry to hear that. I was not surprised. I've done a little work at Columbia myself. But I said, I'm sorry to hear that. She, I said, but you know, everybody has some kind of a god. She said, oh, I'll grant that there is a universal religious instinct. And you will find people in all parts of the world worshiping their several gods. But she said, some of us have progressed up the scale of intelligence until we have outgrown the antiquated idea of a god. Well, I said, lady, you have a God. She said, no, I don't. I said, yes, you do. She said, no, I don't. I said, yes, you do. (laughs) And we were talking out loudly. I don't like loud talk in a public place, a private conversation. But she talked out loudly, and I didn't want her to skin my ignorance before the people on the coach. So I talked out loud. And uh, she said, I don't. I said, you do. And I said, I think I can tell you what your God is. She asked, what is my God? I said, it's a Ph.D. from Columbia University. A good old sister right behind us said, amen. <laughs> Everybody worships something. You may worship your own puny intellect, or you may bow down to some grotesque object, but your ideal is your idol. That's the meaning of the word. And if Christ is not your ideal, you are an idolater. You have an idolatrous philosophy of life. If you do not worship Jesus Christ, and if it seem evil to serve Jesus, choose from the other gods whom you will serve. That's the challenge Joshua gave back there to his people. And he gave them these alternatives. They could worship the gods their fathers worshiped on the other side of the river. Over in Mesopotamia, they worshiped the Teraphim, little household gods, such as those little images Rachel stole from her father and hid in the camel's furniture and sat upon them while her father searched the camp for his gods. Wouldn't you hate to have a little god you could sit on and hide from somebody? <laughs> the god I worship, the god I, I serve, fills the universe. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him. I saw a big league pitcher pull out a little image and make signs with it and put it back in his shirt and wind up, throw the ball to Hank Greenberg. And Hank knocked it over the fence. <laughs> I'd hate to have a little god I could hide in my shirt. Like some people take these little uh, fetishes around. Maybe a rabbit's foot. They did not give the rabbit very good luck, but they think they'll give them good luck. They hang them from their rearview mirrors in their cars. They have them blessed sometimes by priests with the idea that they can protect the car from harm and danger. And so those people in Mesopotamia thought these little images could protect the household from harm and danger. And so Laban wanted to find his gods and Rachel hid them, and took them with her. And when she died, they were buried with her down there at Ephrathah, down at Bethlehem. But I'd hate to have a little god I could sit on and hide from somebody. And if they wanted to, they could worship those gods, but Jehovah was superior to the gods of Mesopotamia. He had called out Abraham and said, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred separate. He said to Abraham, Get into a land that I will show thee. You separate, and I'll make you a blessing to all the nations, all the families of the earth. Through separation and evangelization, I'll use you as a channel of blessing. I'll deposit in you and your seed my revelation, the word of God. And through you I'll send the Savior. And I'll use you to witness to the fact of one true God in the midst of universal idolatry. So get out of your country and from your kinsmen into the land and I'll show thee and I'll make thee a great blessing. Bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. I'll bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Jehovah was superior to those gods of Mesopotamia. They could have worshipped the gods of Egypt. But Jehovah was superior to the gods of Egypt with a stretched out hand and a mighty arm with miracles and signs and wonders, he delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage. The Egyptians worshipped the river Nile. And when Jehovah got in a contest with the devil, Pharaoh, he turned the river into blood. And then the magicians could do some wonderful things empowered by the devil but uh, uh, Moses or Aaron's rod swallowed up the rods of the magicians. They worshiped frogs. And God plagued them with frogs. One old frog can run a man crazy. Think of millions of frogs coming up from the River Nile. They came into the houses. You Go down the street and have to kick frogs out of the way. After a while you got to where you didn't care if you'd step on one and be squash, squash everywhere you went. women had to throw out the frogs when they'd start to make bread they'd find them in the kneading troughs sit down at the table and start to take your fork in a dill pickle and hop away (laughs) 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 Pharaoh said I can't stand it send for Moses Tell him to get rid of the frogs. Moses said, when? Pharaoh said, tomorrow. Isn't that just like an old sinner? One more night with the frogs. The next day Moses walked out and held up the rod of God and all the frogs croaked. They pile them up in great heaps. And the land stank, but it was clear to the frogs. Jehovah was superior to the gods of Egypt. They worshipped lice and flies, and God plagued them. They worshipped cattle, and God sent a murrain of cattle. They worshipped the sun, and God blotted out the sun. There was darkness of all the land. They worshipped uh, the human body, and God sent flames uh, and boils. They worshipped the elements, and God sent Lightning and thunder and hail mingled with blood, and they worshipped uh, locusts. Even today, you go over there and buy scarabs, little little insects, jewels and, and insects made uh, jewels made in the form of an insect, and uh, you, you buy them on the street. They sell them, and they worship those things. But God sent a plague of locusts. They worship. The firstborn. And all the firstborn of Egypt died. Over there in Goshen, where there was blood on the doorpost, the the death angel passed over. Jehovah was superior to those gods. And he was superior to the gods of the Amorites. What could the gods of the Amorites do for their devotees? Jehovah drave out the two kings of the Amorites. We read in that old English. He drove them out. He set the hornet before Israel and drave out the two kings of the Amorites, Sahan and Og were their names. And he gave Israel a land for which they did not labor, cities which they built not, and vineyards which they planted not, olive yards they planted not, and houses they built not, and they dwelt in them. And he drove out those people. And I used to wonder about that, and the first time I ever heard old Dr. Jones preach, old Dr. Bob Jones Sr., uh, he was not old Dr. Jones then. That's 52 years ago. I heard him say he wondered about that. He said, "I I, I wondered how it was that God told Joshua to go in there and kill those people, and was there justice there? Now, of course, anything God does is just. Anything God does is all right. God, what is sin but going contrary to the will of God? But." uh, Dr. Jones said, I didn't have the facts. And he said, I got the facts. I found out that those people were so diseased, if God had not destroyed them to the extent that he did, they would have contaminated the entire human race. And many years later, I was in summer school in New York, studying under Dr. Thompson, who uh, just got his doctor's degree under Albright, the most famous famous archaeologist of that day. And I asked him about this, and he took... uh, Two weeks to answer my question. And after trips with him to the Museum of Natural History and uh, sitting at his feet in those lectures, I concluded that if God had not destroyed those old Canaanite peoples to the extent that he did, they certainly would have contaminated physically as well as morally the whole human race. And one day I was reading back in Genesis, and I read that God said to Abraham, your children will go down into Egypt and dwell there around 400 years. And afterward I'll bring you out and bring you into the land of Canaan, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full. In those 400 intervening years, the iniquity of the Amorite filled up and God destroyed the Amorite. As he sent fire and brimstone down upon Sodom and Gomorrah, he drained them out, he destroyed them before Israel I want to tell you, my friends, that I've gone around over this country for more than 50 years preaching the word of God. Over half a century, and I've gone with my eyes open, my ears open, and I've studied the Bible, and I've read uh, current events, and and I've read history, and I love to read history, and I've kept up with what's going on. I want to tell you, the iniquity of America is filling up very rapidly. And if we don't have a turning back to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, God will destroy this nation. The hope of this country is institutions like this, by the way. But God will destroy it. He's no respecter of persons. We're in a life and death struggle in this country. There are two philosophies that are locked horns. (laughs) One is the philosophy of the Bible, and the other is humanism. Do you know what UNESCO is? United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. It was organized after the Second World War. The first meeting was at the Sorbonne, 1946. The outstanding speaker on that occasion, the most outstanding speaker, was Dr. Andre Malraux. Dr. Mauro, who was minister of culture in France, said at the end of the 19th century, the great tragic voice of Nietzsche was heard once again over the archipelago saying the old God is dead. This meant there was hope for the royalty of man. End of the quotation. If the old God is dead, man can have God's place. And in UNESCO, its purpose and its program, on pages 7 and 8, you will find the statement, the purpose of UNESCO is to give to the world a global humanism, evolutionary in its concept, rather than a static humanism. That was written by Julian Huxley, the first Director General, who was a blatant atheist, and said, it's impossible for me, or one who thinks as I think, to believe in a personal God. And so they said through UNESCO we're going to give to the world a global religion called humanism. And so that's what we're up against. We finance it from the United States Treasury and give more than any other country and more than all the others put together we give to UNESCO. And uh, the purpose is to Brainwashed. The people see every home has three washing machines. Got one back there for clothes, and one in the kitchen for dishes, one in the living room for brains. All right. And uh, so we are a brainwashed generation. And since that first meeting of UNESCO, we have had men in Methodist and Baptist institutions teaching that God is dead. Outstanding apostles of the God is dead movement. Old Doctor. Altheiser, Emory University, founded by old Bishop Candler, godly old Methodist bishop of another generation, who I'm told wept on his dying bed because of the way things had gone at Emory. And uh, Dr. Hamilton, who held a chair of theology at Colgate Rochester Baptist Theological Seminary in Rochester, New York, teaching that God is dead. But the idea is the old God is dead. The old God of heaven. The old God of the Bible. And now since that God is dead, man can have God's place. And we can worship ourselves, humanity. We put men on the moon and it was a tremendous achievement, so we celebrated. We had a holiday. And Walter Cronkite had a guest who he said was the most brilliant space fiction writer in all the world, and uh, he asked this erudite gentleman, what theological implication does the moon landing have? Oh, he said great theological implication. You see, man has felt that there's no God. Dr. Horton then felt that way. I have felt that way. These brethren haven't. Brother Pastor Taylor. But uh, man has felt that there's no God. But now he knows there is a God. But he's coming to see that man himself is God. What poppycock? Because we can bottle up some of the oxygen that God gave us to keep us alive and take it out to the moon and shoot ourselves out there with some of the elements that God created. He said, man's God. You know, when Titov went around the world in a rocket came back, He said, uh, there's no God. He said, I've been out in space and I didn't see God out there. I could have told Titov before he went out there he wouldn't find God in space. If you can't find God down here where there's something, you're not likely to find him out there where there's nothing. (laughs) Titov hasn't been anywhere. He just went out. um, John Glenn held his hand over his head and he said, that's 80 inches from the floor. Let an inch represent 100 miles. He said, that's the diameter of the earth. He said, I was projected out about 200 miles from the earth, as before he went to the moon. And he said, uh, I went out about that far on that scale. That's all Titov did. He went out about that far and came back and said, There's no God. Poor blind atheist. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. But uh, he said, Because I went out there in space, went out that far. You know, the moon is 30 times that far on that scale. But the moon is our backyard. It belongs to us. It revolves around us. It's only 240,000 miles. But the nearest star to this earth, Beta Centauri, is 26 trillions of miles. It's four light years. It takes light four years to come from Beta Centauri. And it's a near neighbor. If you should go out to Beta Centauri in one of those moon rockets at 18,000 miles an hour as they rode them to the, the moon, it would take you 186,900 years to get out there. And you'd die of old age before you got back.
1: <laughs>
0: and yet an atheist went out there about that far and said there's no God. I preached at Palomar College out in California and asked the president when I got through, is this have a, does this have a connection at all with the observatory? He said, no, but he said, the observatory is out here on Mount Palomar. I said, I'll take you out there. We went out there and uh, saw that tremendous uh, camera taking pictures of the heavens every moment of the day and night and uh, saw some of the, f- the pictures. You've seen them in an encyclopedia, for that matter. But one of the astronomers said, over here is the... A picture of the nebulae. He said, We used to think those were worlds in formation because of their spiral shape. Yeah, I remember I used to read about it as a little child. I used to get down on the floor of the encyclopedia and read about this mass of lava spinning around in space and it flung particles from itself. And they went out and spun around and flung particles, and they somehow assumed proper centripetal centrifugal relationship and and magnificent propolis uh, worlds were revolving around the suns and uh, I didn't believe it as a little child (laughs) but he said we used to think there were worlds in formation but with this more powerful telescope we have discovered that there are other universes while the Milky Way is composed of 18 million suns and the nearest sun in the Milky Way is more than two hundred thousand light years away. But there are myriads of systems beyond the Milky Way. Yet a fella said <laughs> out that far and said, There's no God. Poor blind people. I believe in the dignity of man, don't misunderstand. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou hast made him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the fowls of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. But modern man says, I have dominion, how excellent is my name in all the earth, down with God, up with people, and we have a religion of humanism. And it comes at you from every area of life, every direction. I repeat, if we don't have a turning back to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, God will destroy this nation. Russia won't have to attack us. You ask if I'm preaching the social gospel, no, sir. I believe you have to come to Jesus, to God through Jesus Christ. And it's the presence of Christians, the salt of the earth that will save society. And if you want America saved, get people converted. Don't just try to do it politically and, and with a moral uh, majority idea with unbelievers and everybody else. I believe in, in uh, standing against those sins. Don't misunderstand. But I'm saying the thing that will save this country is for people to turn to God Through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only thing that will do it. If it seem evil to serve the true God. Choose these other gods. The gods of the Amorites. The gods of the Egyptians. The gods of the Mesopotamians. But it's for me and my house. We'll serve the Lord. Now he compared Jehovah with those religions. And Jehovah was superior. Compared Jehovah. Jesus with the religions of the world. Christianity is distinctive. Did you know that the World Council of Churches in their last meeting declared a five-year moratorium on missions because they have come to see that the best, the best in the other religions is a, an approach to the New Testament? Poppycock. Come Christ and his religion are distinctive. Wherever Jesus plants his banner, he declares Christ has no concord with Bilal or light with darkness. He that believeth hath no part with the infidel. Our religion is distinctive. It's the only religion that can offer pardon to the sinner. Where in all the world is there a religion that can do that? They can feed the hungry. They can clothe the naked. They can protect the defenseless. They can promote good deeds, but they cannot pardon the sinner. At the great council of religions in Chicago, years ago, a Mr. Cook represented Christianity after the representative of every great world religion had extolled the virtues of his or her religion, Dr. Cook stood up and told the story of Lady Macbeth, how after the murder of Duncan, for which she was responsible, she walked in her sleep, and looking at her lily-white hand, she cried, oh, can all of Neptune's, no, it was Macbeth. Said, he said, can all of Arabia's perfumes sweeten this little hand?'" And Dr. Cook turned to the representatives of the great religions of the world and asked, ladies and gentlemen, is there anything in the religion of anyone present that offer pardon to such and one as Lady Macbeth? They all shook their heads in the negative. Dr. Cook said, I present to you a religion that could offer pardon to such and one as Lady Macbeth. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth from all sin. Let all institutions and councils and systems and theories bow down at the feet of Jesus and stack their crowns at the foot of his cross for they cannot pardon the sinner. Christianity is the only religion that presents a platform upon which justice and mercy can fraternize. They can fall in love and get married. I stood there somewhere near the place where Joshua gave this challenge. I had come up from Jacob's well, and a friend of mine, an evangelist, saw me there and said, Dr. Parker, come over here. My party is seated in a garden over here. I want you to talk to them. I turned to one of my assistants and said, get the folk on the coach and have a devotion. I'll be with you in a few minutes. I said, I'll take just a few minutes. We're here in this valley. Joshua brought the children of Israel into this valley after the conquest of Canaan. And the grandest ceremony in the history of the world took place. Here somewhere your God has told you that that mountain is Mount Gerizim and that is Mount Ebal. And he has told you that this is the Mount of Blessing and this is the Mount of Cursing but he did not tell you why they're called that. Joshua divided the children of Israel into two companies. Six tribes over against Gerathim and six tribes against Ebal. And the Levites stood here in the valley and read the law. This was given to Moses before he died and Joshua carried it out. And as they read the blessings of the law, the six tribes on Mount Gerathim cried, Amen. When they read the curses of the law, the six tribes on Mount Ebo cried amen. Curses and blessings go together. They form the same structure. The no-hellist, the atheist, or the Jehovah's Witness, or those who deny the existence of hell, may put their shoulders to the basement pillar and struggle and groan and suffer and die and leave their bones to molder in the cellar, but the righteous shout on and the damned groan on Through all eternity. Then I quoted a little poem I had written some years before. I wrote it, see yonder from the sky above, but I changed it, pointing at Mount Ebel, the Mount of Cursing. See yonder from that mount above, stern justice hurls a dart of wrath. The sinner here in veil below, I'd written here on earth below, the sinner here in veil below is standing in the danger path. He'll soon be struck. And justly so. But bursting from that mount of love, sweet mercy brings a shield of grace. I'd written from that gate of love, that mount of love, Mount Gerizim here, sweet mercy brings a shield of grace. That shield is Christ, the Son of God. Swifter far than dark can ride, he flies to take the sinner's place, is struck himself, and sheds his blood. Sinner, t'was for thee he died. Stern justice now is satisfied. Christianity is the only logical religion, by the way. Justice is satisfied by mercy. Christianity is the only religion that can make men happy. It makes us happy because it delivers us from the guilt of sin and from the grip of sin, one day from the presence of it. It makes us happy because it gives us assurance that the creator of this universe loves us. How could one be happy without that knowledge? Some heathen may conceive of a God of love, though you don't hear of that. Someone in the darkest place on earth may look up through giant jungle trees and say, there's a God and he loves me. He sends the sunshine and the rain and he... Enriches the soil, and he makes it possible for me to bring my living out of the ground. He, he provides for me. He loves me. And then the tornado comes and levels one of those giant trees on his grass cottage and kills his babies. And he wonders, "Does God love me?" You have no assurance of it. We have. We have a demonstration of it at Calvary. And Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. And only Christianity gives assurance of God's love. It makes us happy because it declares that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the call according to his purpose. I'm happy in Jesus. I'm happy in Jesus because I have fellowship with him and with the Father. And John said that which we have heard and seen declare we unto you that you might have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things write we unto you that your joy may be full. And you cannot have joy and have full joy out of fellowship with God and Jesus. God the Father and Christ the Son. Again, it's impossible. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, PreachTheBible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit KNVBC.com for Christian music you can trust.